If you've got your Bible, turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going through this little study on Nehemiah. I'm calling it Reboot, Restart. If you don't have your Bible, open up the Bible app on your phone, hit location, find church together, and all the scriptures are right there for you and a few extra notes as well. Nehemiah is a reboot guy. He's a restarter. When he heard and saw that things were, were broken and wrong and perilous and precarious in Jerusalem, he says, I got to do something about that. I got to go reboot with God's help what's happening there so that the glory of God can be seen, that his chosen people can walk in the confidence and the victory and the promise that God has given them. Nehemiah is all about a reboot. So last week in Nehemiah chapter 1, we saw how Nehemiah's heart was broken when he heard about what was going on in Jerusalem. We saw that in that moment of heartbreak, he had to be brave in his honesty and own his mistakes, and own the pain and the sin of his people and his forefathers. And then how he started this journey with bold hope that maybe, just maybe, God would use him in the same way that maybe, just maybe, God wants to use us to make a difference in this world. And he had this bold hope. He said, I'm in. Hope is a beautiful thing. It is a gift. It is oxygen to our soul. And when we don't have hope, man, do we feel it. But one thing that hope is not is that hope is not a strategy. Hope is not a plan. It's essential for a good plan and a strategy, but hope in itself is not a strategy. So here's Nehemiah with this broken heart, and he's figuring out what honesty looked like, and he's got this hope, but if he's going to fulfill and actualize this hope, he needs a plan. He needs a strategy. And that's what's starting to develop In Nehemiah chapter 2, let me read the first few verses to you. During the first month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I'd never been sad in his presence before. So the king said to me, Why are you sad when you aren't sick? I see that there is nothing but sadness in your heart. The first thing that Nehemiah is doing here, as it aligns with Tom's strategy, and I think Tom probably built his strategy from Nehemiah rather than Nehemiah getting the idea from Tom, just thought is that he's starting 
to shape and understand and define the opportunity before him. It's, it's real interesting. During the month of Nisan, now Nisan is mid-March to, to mid-April. It was actually in mid-November to mid-December that his heart was broken. If you remember in Nehemiah chapter 1, he says, today, I'm going to get started and make a difference. But here we are four months later and he hasn't started yet. Why? Because he's waiting for the right opportunity. He's trying to define and create the opportunity before him. Because he knows that on his own, there is no opportunity to be grasped. And that if God is going to work through him, God needs to work through the king. But the king is his boss. And the king has got a lot to lose by the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah has to be incredibly wise and incredibly patient in finding the right opportunity. The rest of his story tells us that he's a go-getter, that he's a make-it-happen kind of guy. When he says, I'm going to go today in chapter 1, you believe him. But he waits four months because the opportunity to talk to the king has to be right. And so he goes to see the king. It was a big party. It was a big banquet. Nehemiah, whose heart we've seen break privately, is now fulfilling his public role as a cupbearer. Some scholars believe that this party was some kind of birthday celebration to the king. And because it was the king's birthday, he wanted others to be in a good mood because he wanted to be in a good mood. And often, as part of his birthday celebrations, he would grant the requests of the servants. So the wine was set before the king. It was put under the table. And as a cupbearer does, the cupbearer tests the wine first. If after a couple of minutes he's still alive, then the king will take some. He was doing his job, but I suspect at the same time, a little bit of wine helped his fear. And perhaps a little bit of wine softened the king as well. So he leant over, and it says he gave the cup to the king. And in this transaction, perhaps Nehemiah and the king somehow lock eyes. This opportunity, this moment that they've been waiting for for a while happens as their eyes connect. And this king, who has a remarkable EQ, realizes that something is up with Nehemiah. So he says, you're sad. You're not a sad guy. I don't have sad guys around me. You're a happy guy. But you're not happy today. What's up? 
He knows he's not sick, because if he was sick, he wouldn't have been allowed anywhere near the king. So he says, why why are you sad? And it's in that moment that Nehemiah knows that the opportunity is now. Whenever we're turning hope into strategy or hope into a plan or hope into reality, the first thing we have to do is to define the opportunity. Nehemiah had waited and waited and waited. The conditions were right. And the king says, why are you sad? It's the opportune moment to move forward. It's the opportune moment to move forward. It is an opportune moment in our world today to move forward. Because people are hurting and pained and struggling. And if the church of Jesus doesn't take this opportune moment to move forward, then people stay lost and stay hurt and are on a fast track that takes them further and further away from the God who is our hope. The first thing that Nehemiah does is he tries to capture this opportunity As he's writing, he goes to a little bit of reflection. He says, in this moment, as I stood before the opportunity, I was overwhelmed with fear. Now again, read Nehemiah's story. There is lots that we could learn about his character. Fear is not part of it. But in this moment, he's afraid. Why? Well, because the king is a powerful guy. You had to be very careful with your words around the king of Persia, lest that you would anger him. But being fearful was something that was out of character for this courageous man. But I love that he says that because he's just putting himself in the category of people like us. We are people who fear too. You know, there's, there's always something to fear, right? There's always something to, to, to trip us up. I was reading this, this week of a philosopher, a theology professor, Paul Tillich, who said this. He says, humanity has always been afraid of something. The ancient world was afraid of death. The Reformation period a few hundred years ago was fearful of their guilt. Since the last hundred or so years, we've been fearful of living meaningless lives. We've always been people of fear, but the good news is the gospel can take away our fear because because the gospel defeats these big things that we're fearful of, right? There, there, there need be no fear of death because our Savior is the God of resurrection. There need be no fear of guilt because our Jesus forgives us. 
There need be no fear of meaninglessness because Jesus gives us purpose. But in this moment, Nehemiah is fearful. Uh, has anyone seen the movie, um, I Bought a Zoo? Have you guys seen that movie? You remember that movie? There's this great scene. It lasts for about 30 seconds. There's this teenage boy. He's found this girl that he really, really likes. And he wants to ask her out, but he's afraid. He's fearful. And so he goes to his dad and says, Dad, I, I like her. I, I want to be with her, but I, I, I'm just afraid. I don't know if I can get the words out of my mouth to ask her out. And the dad says, Son, all you need is 10 seconds of insane bravery, and you can do this. And I imagine Nehemiah is in that moment. His request is a little bit different. It's not to a girl he wants to date. It's to a king whose permission he needs. But all he needed was just a few seconds of insane courage to start to design the solution. And so he takes a deep breath. And his first words are one of acknowledgement or almost worship. May the king live forever. That's how you're supposed to address a king, I guess. I mean, don't try it if you're trying to date a girl. It doesn't apply there across context. But, but may the king live forever. With that bravery inside of him, he says to the king, why should I not be sad? When the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. He's saying, I'm sad because my forefathers, their graves where they are buried has been desecrated. Now, that's part of the reason that he's sad. He's not lying. He's not manipulating. But there's another part of the reason that he's sad as well, is that he wants to go and do something about it. But he's been incredibly wise in his courage. If he'd have led to the king by saying, I'm sad because I need to go and fix Jerusalem, the king's saying, no, you're not. You are not doing that. You work for me. The last thing we need is a strong Jerusalem. But he uses his wisdom because he knows that a king is concerned about legacy. He knows that the desecration of someone's grave is an abomination, especially to a king. So he has the courage. He makes the request. And then the king says, verse 4, what is your request? What is it that you want? To, to put it another way, the king is saying, what's your solution? What's your plan? How do we want to deal with this? How do we want to grow out of this? How do we want to move forward? What's your solution? In this, in this phrase, the king is opening all the resources of the kingdom and saying, yeah, I agree that what's happening is wrong, and I want to help. I don't know if Nehemiah had been expecting that response. 
You, you know, to go back to the little boy who's got the courage to ask out the girl, right? We, we focus sometimes so much on asking the person out. It's like, yeah, I'll go out with you. It's like, oh, what now? <laughs> what do I say now? I think Nehemiah has one of those moments. He has the courage to ask. He asks well. The king says, what do you want? And it says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Now, I don't imagine that's the kind of prayer where he got down on his knees and he started to intercede. I imagine that's more like the prayer that says, God, help me. God, I'm going to open my mouth and I really need it to be your words to come out right now. Because he just offered me everything I need to fulfill the calling that you have got. So, so God, please help me. Now, this kind of um, telegraph prayer, this, this, this kind of desperate cry for help. It's not the ideal model for prayer, but realize that as he's offering it, he's offering it on the back of four months of intercession. And so he says this, if it pleases the king, and if I have found favor with you, send me to Judah and to the city where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. It's a brave prayer. But that's his solution. He knows that he needs to get there. He need, knows that he needs to rebuild it. Because when he rebuilds it, the problem is outlined to the king, we fixed. Hope is not a strategy. How do you build a strategy? You define the opportunity. That's what he's doing in the first place. Secondly, you start the solution. You start to plan. It's not much of a plan at this stage, but he knows he needs to get there and he knows he needs the king's permission. Verse 6, the king with the queen seated beside him. I think that's an interesting deal because he knows that he leans on the cupbearer a lot and he wants to know what his wife is thinking as well. She says, how long is your journey going to be? It's a good question. That says how much he values Nehemiah. When will you return? How long am I going to have to be without your services? So I gave him a definite time. <laughs> My guess is that this definite time probably wasn't as definite as Nehemiah wanted it to be. And it pleased the king to send me. In order to get there, even though God was ultimately in control, the king's blessing made it a lot easier. And he got the king's blessing because all earthly kings and all earthly rulers answer to God. God gave him permission through the king. Let's remember that in this messed up, weird, crazy political time. That whoever our leaders are, whoever our kings are, ultimately answer to God. He defined the opportunity with great patience. He started to put together a solution. 
with great courage. And then the plan starts to take shape. He's flowing now. He's feeling bold. He's feeling empowered. Verse 7, I also said to the king, (laughs) he got what he wanted, but he wanted a little bit more. Get that. I like that guy. I said to the king, if it pleases the king, then could you write me some letters to the governors of the regions west of the Euphrates River so that they will grant me safe passage until I reach Judah? What he's saying is, will you give me a get-out-of-jail-free card on my way there? Will you give me this letter which acts as protection for me? It was a good part of the plan. Because if you didn't make that request, there's all kinds of things that could have happened on the way. In fact, the rebuilding of the wall in Jerusalem had been shut down previously, Ezra 4 tells us, because there wasn't permission given. He's growing in boldness, verse 8. And also, if you could just write a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to rebuild the gates of the temple's fortress, the city wall, and the home where I live, well, that would be very nice as well. In just a moment, as his courage is moving forward, as he's grabbed the opportunity, as the solution is coming together, He's getting from the king the resources he needs to make this happen. Safety there and resources when he arrives. It's probably a good thing this wasn't happening a couple of thousand years later. The king could have said no with the price of timber today, right? But Asaphah, he's the man. And what the king does, king says, everybody else does. Last part of verse 8, the king granted my requests for the gracious hand of my God was on him. The king granted the requests because the the, the gracious hand of God was on me. What's what's happening here is it's not just Nehemiah's got a good idea that he wants to, to give himself to. It's that God is working out a plan to fulfill his promises and restore God's people. As we as we gather in worship, as we function as the church. We don't just do so because it's a nice thing to do. We do it because God's hand is on us, because he has a purpose for us that he wants us to accomplish. Nehemiah chapter 1 starts, heartbroken, gets a little bit of hope, but hope is not a strategy. He needs a strategy. He needs a plan. And in this moment, in this banquet, at this party, it comes. He grabs the opportunity. He starts to design a solution and he gets the resources and then he goes. Now, just to to finish up this part of the chapter, 
When Sambalat the Horonite and Tobrik the Amorite official heard that someone had come to pursue prosperity of the Israelites, they were greatly displeased. Think about that. These guys are frustrated that someone is coming to their area to bring prosperity to it. They're saying in our area, we would much rather have people who are hurting and struggling and lost rather than that they become prosperous. It sounds so ludicrous, except it happens all the time, right? We have this incredible resource given by God the Father in the name of Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit to help people prosper, to help them move away from the brokenness in their lives, to help them move away from the pain and start to follow Jesus and let him put broken lives back together again. So often people say, you can't do that. And we're like, why can't we do that? Don't you want people to know the good news? And it's life, and it's hard, and there are obstacles, and there are difficulties. But it doesn't mean we should stop. Our hearts have been broken but filled with hope that God can make a difference. But hope is not a strategy. And so he starts off on this journey. He sees the opportunity. The plan starts to come together. The resources fall in place. And then it gets hard. But he keeps going because the God who is following is worth it. And because he's all in to what God has called him to. I was reading this story this week in a book that I finished. It talks about how a century ago there was a band of brave souls who were one way missionaries. And when they would go on their missionary travels, instead of taking a suitcase, they would pack all their earthly belongings in a coffin. As they sailed out of port, they waved goodbye to everyone they loved and everything they knew. They knew that they would never return home alive. A.W. Milne was one of those missionaries. He set sail for the New Hebrides in the South Pacific, knowing full well that the headhunters who lived there had martyred every missionary before him. His coffin was packed. But for 35 years, he lived among that tribe, (coughs) and he loved them. When he died, tribe members buried him in the middle of their village, and inscripted this epitaph on the tombstone. When he came, there was no light. 
But when he left, there was no darkness. He was all in. Nehemiah was all in. His heart was broken, but he had some hope. But that hope wasn't a strategy. And so God builds a strategy around him. And he experiences some resistance, but he keeps going because he's all in. God has such an incredible plan for our life and for your life. But if we're not all in, we'll bail. We'll give up. We'll take the easy route. We'll default to the, the lowest we have to. So like the coffin-carrying missionaries, like Nehemiah, if we want to reboot this world, the first thing we must do is say, Jesus, Jesus, I'm in. I'm all in.